Hi, I'm Heather Knight, and this is the Surviving to Thriving podcast. One in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. We're going to discuss the taboo topic of domestic violence and the tools our thrivers have used to succeed in life. We want you to know that you are not alone in this fight. Please keep listening if you or anyone you know has been impacted by domestic violence. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsor, Night Protection Services for making this podcast possible and all the support they provide our cause. Hey guys, what's going on? Today we've got Amber Furman with us. She lives out in Las Vegas and we met her when we were out there doing some business stuff and so uh, we have her now on our podcast. She is a criminal defense attorney as well as practicing immigration law. She's a certified master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming. I'm going to have her go more into that because I have no clue what that means. Um, but she also is a podcast host and she hosts more than corporate. So definitely go on to whatever podcast platforms that you have and find her podcast and go out and listen to that. Amber, what is a master practitioner of neuro-linguistic programming? I actually have to read it because I cannot <laughs> say it without reading it. So most people know it as NLP, um, neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And it's the study behind the way that the words that we say and the thoughts that we think impact our actions. Uh, it also goes really deep into the things that impacted us from when we were a kid. So you have this imprint age from the ages of zero to seven that most of us have very few memories about, but those years and the things that were said to us or happened to us during those years imprint our unconscious mind in every decision that we make and how we show up as adults. And so it's the study of all of that together, the relationship between your conscious mind and your unconscious mind and how to really become effective at communicating with yourself and other people to be as successful as you can in whatever areas you want to be. Awesome. That is crazy that we'll go more into how you got into that and how you became a master of that. Um, but tell us a little bit more about you. Where'd you come from? Family? I know you got a dog. We're, we're dog people. I do. I do. Yeah. Bailey just made an appearance before we started recording. So I grew up in a super small town in Southern Idaho, me and my dad, my mom, and I have two brothers. Um, I'm the oldest and the only girl. Um, and really like my, my upbringing was awesome. It, it was just like this normal, great. I couldn't imagine any other way to grow up. I grew up in a farming town, um, about 2000 people in the town. Um, I didn't realize this wasn't normal until I started talking to people outside of, of like my small little state. But, um, the people that I started kindergarten with were the same people that I graduated high school with. Like we just had the same classes through yeah. everything. But growing up in that small town, I feel like taught so many amazing qualities as far as like what you should get out of life and, and how to work for what you want. I mean, everybody was farming and you're getting up in the morning doing chores. And I just always felt like there was something more than that little town for me. And so I always knew that I was going to get out and go to college, but never really had this clear direction on exactly where I was going or what I was going to do. Um, but I always knew that college was in the plans for me. So that was really what my upbringing was around was preparing myself for, for college. I always cared about school, always cared about my grades. And enough to then after college, go into law school and take yeah. more schooling and, and do all that. So what made you decide to go into criminal law or just even law school in general? 
So that's actually a really interesting question that I haven't always had an answer to. I actually started college at Idaho State with a computer programming major. Um, so law school wasn't my first degree. When I was 19, well, no, I'm sorry, when I was 18, just about to turn 19, my dad was um, killed in a, in a work-related accident. And um, I was a daddy's girl. So that kind of derailed my entire world. And any... I think whenever anybody leaves high school to go to college, you think you know what you want, but you really don't. And then you spend that time trying to figure out um, and gain some clarity. And so those years that I would have been gaining some clarity, were, I was just a mess um, emotionally. And so for about five years, I just kind of spun my wheels. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And so everybody around me kept saying, like, you can't take any time off because if you do, you're not going to go back. And so I sat there and just failed classes over and over again until eventually I actually failed out of undergrad. I received an email from our administrative office saying that I was no longer eligible for financial aid because my GPA had dropped below a 1.5. I had to pay for school out of pocket. And that was that along with some other things, knowing that I wasn't living the, my life the way that I wanted to, um, was really kind of my wake up call that I needed to figure out something else to do with my life. And I think I chose law school at the time without really an understanding of why. Um, where I am now and what I've done with NLP and really gaining an understanding of the way my mind works, I've really come to the decision that because I was so academically driven and so logically driven, it was interesting that I chose one of the only professions where it's completely acceptable to separate your emotions from everything that you do. And I, I really compartmentalized my life um, for a long time. And so I think that had a lot to do with it. I, I ended up graduating from Idaho State in 2009. It took me nine years to get my undergrad. So for anybody out there that's like spinning their wheels, just know like, it doesn't have to be the four years and then going on. It took me nine years to get my undergrad. And then I went to law school, did really well in law school, um, graduated towards the top of my class, and then came to Nevada, passed the bar on the first try and started my career. That's awesome. That's amazing. Because a lot of people don't pass the bar on their first try. It was a beast. And I, I think the year that I passed it, there was like a 47% pass rate. It was wow. disgusting. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. And I think it's, thank you for pointing out that you don't have to go on that four-year track. I think everybody gets so stuck in that I have to graduate in four years. I have to be this perfect model college student to do anything with my life. And it is so not the case. And, uh, you know, not knocking anybody who does that. I, I did graduate in three and a half years, but you know, Zach took seven years to graduate. So, you know, we're both on the same six years. I'm sorry, six years. <laughs> and, but, you know, and we're still both in our master's programs and doing all of that. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter how long you take to finish. It doesn't. And, and I can't, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about whether I would have graduated faster had I actually taken some time off and done the healing that I needed to do and then went back to school. And, you know, that's kind of the what if question that we never really get the answer to, but I wasn't ready to do the healing. And so I think if I would have taken the time off of school, I would have lost the only thing that was keeping me grounded. So um, that 
as bad as for somebody like myself who was on the honor roll all through high school and school was so important to fail out of undergrad was like one of the most embarrassing things that I had done up to that point. Like how could I let myself fail out of undergrad? But when I look back on it now, that's probably the only thing that kept me from going down a really, really dark path was having at least the structure of school to go to, even if I wasn't capable of taking it seriously. Would you say that was your healing point of failing out of undergrad or was there something that kind of just like hit you head on like a freight train where you were like, okay, this is, this is how I deal with what happened and this is how I start moving forward? So there's a couple of things. I I think that it kind of goes in stages. So as far as pulling myself out of this spiral that I was in, failing out of undergrad was part of it. I also um, was drinking a ton, more than I I think I realized I was drinking and um, making some really bad decisions while I did it. And I remember getting pulled over driving home on a day that I shouldn't have even been walking. And I don't even know how I was not taken to jail. I like, I was right around the corner from my house and by some like grace of God, the cop let me go. And I had already had law school kind of in my mind at this point. And I remember thinking like you just about threw your life away before it even started. Now I know now from what I've been through that a DUI is not the end of the world. However, it would have been really difficult to get into law school and pass the bar. Like, um, the moral character part of the bar is is super difficult and they look back through your entire life. And I just remember thinking like, this is not the life that you want to live. And my mom had um, a couple of brothers that were killed with a, you know, drunk driving accident. And so that was always something that was like drilled into us. Like you don't drink and drive. And so for me, it was like another one of those shame points of, I'm, I would have had to tell my mom that I've done all of this stuff. So those two things pulled me out of that spiral that I was going down after my dad died. But the real two by four didn't come until 2016 when I was working um, as an attorney at my second job. So I had been practicing immigration for two years and then I started working at a criminal defense firm and I had been working there for a year and I had to go up to Reno for work. So I was about eight hours away from everybody that I knew and I just had this panic attack and normally I never realized how close I was to panic attacks in the past and what I would do is put myself in a situation with people I was comfortable with but because I was up there I couldn't do that I wasn't comfortable around anything so I would pull myself together to go to court and I would make it through my court appearances and then I would just fall apart and spend the rest of the day like hyperventilating in a corner. I couldn't keep any food down. I couldn't regulate my breathing. Um, it was one of the most terrifying moments for me. And I remember calling a therapist while I was up there and scheduling an appointment for when I got back to Vegas and you know, talking to her on the phone while I was up there and then scheduling the personal appointment. And that to me was the moment that I started to realize that I had some real healing work that I needed to do, that I had a lot of unresolved emotions over a lot of things in my life, and that I wasn't going to be able to keep going at the pace I was going if I didn't deal with them. What's going on, guys? So Heather has a little bit of a stomach bug going on, so I'm going to take over the rest of the episode for her, and we're going to keep on rolling with Amber. Uh, we just got talking, done talking about a couple situations with her going through law school. We're going to move on to what she's working on now. So Amber, why don't you give us a scoop on what's happening out in Vegas for you today? 
Yeah, I'll let you in on a little bit of what I feel like is my seven ring circus some days. Um, I have my law firm that I run. Um, I opened it in 2017 called Furman Law. We focus on immigration and some criminal defense as well. And particularly what I really love is where they intersect. So working with non-citizens that are charged with a crime and then helping criminal defense attorneys structure plea negotiations in a way that minimize the immigration consequences. So if, if we really think back to what the criminal justice system is supposed to be about, there's so much of it that is punitive and there's all these cases that say that the punishment has to match the crime and all, all of this, all this stuff. And when it comes to non-citizens, there's this level of, of a consequence that's not always considered when a plea bargain is being made or a plea is being entered into. And so making sure that a person doesn't, let's say, avoid jail time and then end up permanently barred from being in the United States is extremely important to me. So that's where I spend the majority of my time. I also, after 2016, when I started to rebuild from dealing with all of the emotions that I'd hidden for the last, what, 30 years of my life, I started really getting curious about the way the mind works. And so I, I found NLP programming or NLP um, classes in March of this year. I took my first NLP class and just kind of fell in love with that. So I'm using what I know there to help other entrepreneurs and business owners who might be stuck in a very similar place that I was, which really came down to living life on somebody else's terms, living life under expectations that you've picked up along your way and not really living life authentically with what you want to be doing. And so how do you shed those expectations of other people? And how do you become really true and authentic about what your purpose is and then be courageous and comfortable enough to, to go accomplish that? So I really enjoyed um, doing some coaching stuff with people. And that's where really what my podcast is all centered around as well. That's awesome. And I know in the conversations we've had before, um, we both have a fascination with mindset and leadership and development, resiliency. So I definitely want to circle back to that here shortly, but let's talk a little bit more about your law practice and um, criminal defense and immigration law are, are two very separate, I guess, opposite ends of the spectrum, but also intersect a good bit. Um, but we also mentioned that you've had a little bit of dealings with domestic violence and your uh, in your practice as a whole. So can you tell us about any type of incidents or situations, um, I guess, without foregoing too much of the, um, the privilege to your clients, but tell us a little bit about your experience in that realm? Yeah. So I've dealt with it on both sides. I've never worked for the state, so I've never prosecuted somebody who's charged with domestic violence. I have taken cases of victims of domestic violence in TPO hearings and things to that effect. So I've dealt with the accused and also the individuals that are, are being abused in, in different capacities. And honestly, it's one of the hardest areas of law for me to practice. And what makes it so hard for me is that it's so unclear. And the reason it's unclear is because, first of all, domestic violence has the stigma that you, people are so afraid, which this is part of the abuse that, that comes through, that people are so afraid to talk about it. And they're so afraid to really open up. So when that 
when that police report is made or when though, because normally, I mean, you know this, when a police report is made for the first time in a true domestic violence situation, that's not the beginning of the abuse. Absolutely. And so what you're getting is they've been pushed to a point where they feel like this is their only option because they're terrified either way they go. They can either go back to this house where they're terrified, but they know that there's going to be these huge consequences for reporting this to the police if there's not retribution or if there's not any punishment. So if they have to go back to this household, there's going to be huge punishment and their life's just going to get worse. So I think what you get in those situations is the very minimal stuff. They, they never give the whole story when they're talking to the cops the first time. And unfortunately for the victims, what that does is it creates so many holes for criminal defense attorneys to poke through to say, you know, why is there inconsistency here? Why are you saying this now when in the police report you said this? So that's the first thing that makes it difficult for me. And that's the really practical thing. But the other thing, and I don't think this gets talked about enough, is people who are not in a domestic relationship that think, and this happens all the time in Vegas, he didn't really do anything to me. I just thought that if I called the cops that they would take him away for a couple of minutes and then our relationship would get better. And those false allegations make it so much more difficult to figure out where the true abuse comes in. And it does a disservice to everybody because there's this, there's this question of, is this person really an abuser or is he this um, victim of a false accusation? And in most cases of domestic violence, unless you're dealing with the serious cases, there's not a lot of evidence to go on because by the time these police reports have been made, any bruises have healed any, I mean, it's not, it's not like they're walking in with this open and shut case. So to me, those are two of the most difficult things with defend with being involved in the criminal justice system with domestic violence. Um, and obviously we go through that as criminal defense attorneys. I just talked a minute ago about how, I picked the law and I ended up compartmentalizing my emotions. And this is one of the areas that that compartmentalizing unfortunately becomes extremely necessary because I can't get involved in whether I think my client is an abuser or not, or else I can't do my job. And so in order for me to best represent that person, I have to be able to emotionally separate myself from what the victim might be feeling. And that eventually takes a toll on everything you do. And that's a ton of great points. And you know, my experience in law enforcement and Heather in the same, and that's really where our passion has come from with this nonprofit is so many things that you said ring so true, not just in Vegas, but in Atlanta, across the country, across the world. And it's really unfortunate that, you know, the girl, if you will, quote unquote, that cried wolf becomes a thing because you see that. And then the officers responding, get a little bit desensitized to whether or not it's accurate or happening and then unfortunately it becomes one of those where it gets shrugged off far too much and again that time that they call and they actually do need the help because it actually did happen becomes a little less obvious and then the conversation just keeps getting swept under the rug and I think that's one of the greatest things we're highlighting with Surviving to Thriving with this podcast is we're trying to get rid of the taboo aspect of this topic get rid of the domestic violence. Oh, we can't talk about it. Cause if you keep not talking about it, nothing's ever going to change. 
And that's one thing I love about what you hit on is, you know, you're trying to have that conversation because you have to while staying impartial. You know, I think that's one of the hardest things for people to realize is as a police officer, as an attorney, you have a job to do at the end of the day and impartiality is a huge aspect of that. And if you can't maintain that, then you're not going to be fair to anybody involved if you let your emotions get involved. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, there's another side of it as well. And if I dig into some of the programming stuff, our, our brains are designed to keep us safe. And unfortunately, safe means comfortable. It doesn't mean actually safe to our brain. And so when we're talking about the person who cried wolf, the other hard part about it is figuring out whether that person actually cried wolf. Because there's that recanting that comes after in so many real cases because they start thinking about the consequences of no longer being in that relationship. And as bad as a situation might be, and this applies to everything, not just domestic violence, it applies to trying to lose weight, trying to change your, your finances, trying to improve your career, like whatever it is, the situation that you're in might be awful, but your brain knows what that situation is. And it doesn't know what it looks like to be over here. And so as you start to pull out of that, you, they start giving themselves reasons to come back in. And some of that is the abuse. A lot of that is the abuse. But at the same time, a lot of it is that programming. Think of any time, for anybody listening, think of any time that you have tried to change something in your life and you get a certain part along that journey and then you start making excuses to get back into that comfort zone because your brain doesn't understand what that success feels like. And I think a lot of that goes into this as well. There's, it, it's more defined in an abuse situation because those mental thoughts aren't just our own. You have somebody else bringing in the abusive mental side of this. But that idea behind it is why recantations happen so much. And so for anybody who looks at it, I used to be the person that was like, I just don't understand how somebody stays in a domestic relationship. Like I would never let anybody hit me. But even the physical domestic violence relationships aren't about physical. It's all mental. It's all that mental abuse. And by the time it gets physical, they've been abused so long mentally and emotionally that they don't know how to get out of that situation. So when they start to step out of it, they recant and they end up back in it. And that's so much of why prosecutors and law enforcement don't believe recantations. And that's a huge aspect. The, a lot of studies have shown it takes six to eight times of actually physically leaving before the individual leaves for good, which if you think about how much it takes to leave the first time then how much it takes to leave the second time. You're talking years before that sixth or eighth time may show up. And it's, it's truly incredible to think about how much of that is your, like you're, you're like you're saying it's mindset and being afraid of either not having money, not having security and just quote unquote accepting the abuse because they're still in a decent situation, which is, is weird to say, but that's where the mindset really falls to. Yeah. And we put those limitations on ourselves so many times. So then imagine that being compounded by somebody actually saying, if you leave, you're not going to have any money. You're not going to have anywhere to go. I'm going to take your kids away. Like I'm going to track you down. I'm going to find you. So our, our brain will create a story in our head to finish a scenario. And so we do that to ourselves so many times in whatever we're working on in our life. 
But imagine if it's not just in our mind. Imagine if you've got somebody else actually saying those things to you, reinforcing what you're feeling. It becomes an impossible situation, which is why I love what you guys are doing and what other nonprofits are doing in like anybody can give a domestic violence victim a place to stay, but that place to stay isn't what they need. They need the help with the mental aspect of this and the life skills aspect of it because they've been beat down to the point where they don't believe they can survive without this other person. And so giving them a roof over their head and the skills that they need to actually get out of that situation, it has to be both. Absolutely. And one thing that we're really trying to differentiate with what we're doing is the implementation. You know, you can sit in a classroom and be told about it and, if you don't implement that, you're never going to do anything with it. Um, which really circles me back around to your NLP. I'm going to shorten it because I can't pronounce yes. all that either. Several of the conversations we've had always circle back to that mental resiliency and the mental fortitude it takes. And you know, my law enforcement, my military experience and um, I think our first conversation bonded over a book by David Goggins and the crazy Can't things hurt he's me. Done. Yeah. Yes. The crazy things he's done where, you know, it really shows how strong the mind is. And that's something that you yourself have practiced um, more than less. And with all these ultras and mud runs and so on and so forth that you've done, which I, I've done a couple, but I think you've done some insane ones. So share with our audience a little bit more about that mental resiliency that you've then applied to the community you have around some of these crazy mud runs you've done. And tell, just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So first of all, I'm going to kind of break down the last four years in, in steps of, because people ask me like, when did you start working on your mindset? How did you get to this point? And I always tell people that I started working on my mindset because I had to, not because I wanted to. Like you're, you'll be given these signals that you need to work on something and you'll either listen to it or eventually that two by four comes. And 2016 was my two by four. So 2016 to 2017, I really spent working on understanding what human emotions are, understanding that all of the things that I felt, the anxiety that I felt, the sadness that I felt were normal and they don't need to be suppressed and learning how to manage anxiety instead of suppress it. And then once I started feeling stronger about the emotions, the physical side came in. So 2017 was my tough mutter side. And that was just as much mental as it was physical because every race that I did, I found myself doing things that I couldn't do before. And I've always said it's impossible to push yourself out of your comfort zone physically and not have it impact every other area of your life. You, your brain can't be like, okay, well now I know that I climbed this eight foot wall, but I still can't go do this over here. You gain this confidence and this belief in yourself and it goes into every, every area of your life. So Tough Mudder led to opening my law firm in 2017. And that was, or in, yeah, 2017, 2018 was my business year. And then 2019 was my mindset year of really digging in. So kind of understanding that in 2016, when towards the end, my, one of my really good friends is an obstacle course trainer and he was running this race called world's toughest mutter. And it's a, for anybody who doesn't know, it's a 24 hour obstacle course race a five mile loop with 
20 obstacles per five miles and you basically go for 24 hours and you do absolutely as insane. many. Yeah, it's, it is nuts. <laughs> and I remember going out and pit crewing for him. So I had just run my very first Tough Mudder a month before World's Toughest Mudder and I was hooked and I had shortchanged myself. I ran the half Tough Mudder instead of the full and I remember being so disappointed and my trainer told me I would be. So I was like, I can't run 10 miles. I, I'm not capable of that. And he says, you're really going to regret not doing the full. So I get done with the half and he says, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like I'm missing half a race. He says, that's what I told you you'd feel. And so I always tell people like, go out and do the full. Don't, don't do the 5k, do the 10k. So when, when I get done with this and he tells me about this tough, this world's toughest mutter, and he says, I have a spot on my pit crew. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to come out. You can have a four person pit crew because every lap you come in, you need some nutrition. You need to change your clothes. You need to get, you know, ready to go back out for more beatings on your body. And I just went out to this community that was unlike anything I had ever seen before. I was watching people with one leg run these races. I was watching people that were blind. There's, there's a gentleman named Blind Pete who runs these races with a guide. He's like 100% blind and he has a guide that walks him through the obstacles and he completes them all. Um, Superman, I didn't meet him in 2016. I met him in 2017, but he's in a wheelchair and he ran World Stuffest Mudder with me in 2017. Darth Vader is a guy that runs in our races that 15 years ago, he was told he had 10 years to live. There's a vet that runs these races with her dog and she has seizures and the dog can sense her seizures. So he runs around the course with her to wow. sense her seizures. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on with stories of people that you look at them and they just take away every excuse that you have. Cause I mean, I'm sitting here going, I'm a full, I like all my limbs work. I can see. And, and I'm making all these excuses. And then you got these guys out there. I mean, probably the most well-known in the community is a guy named Jim Campbell, who was the first person to hit 200 events. He just hit 200 events a little while ago. And he didn't run his first one until after a horrific accident where he was told he would never walk again. Um, he, he should have died. He got hit by a semi on a motorcycle. Wow. He should have died. The point is that you meet these people and, and anything you can say of, well, I can't do this because they take away all of those excuses. So at the end of that race, the moral of this part of the story is be careful who you say things to because they might make you do it. So at the end of this race, I tell my trainer, if World's Toughest Mudder is in Vegas next year, I'm running it. And he says, it probably won't be, but I'm holding you to that. And when they announced that it was going to be in Vegas, I got this message from him and he says, Hey, do you remember when I was like, God damn it. So, um, awesome. so I signed up for world's toughest mutter and I was like, now I need to train for this. So in 2017, I did 15 tough mutters and each ten one of them, piece, 10, right? 10 miles, ten, sometimes ten 20. So there were some that wow. I did two laps. My first two lap event was in, um, May in Texas. And I'll never forget that because up to that point, and this again just goes into our self-limitations, I never thought that I could run 20 miles. And when I say run, I actually mean walk, just so y'all know I run 20 miles, but travel on my feet without motorized assistance. I remember saying, okay, Texas is short. It's going to be my first, or Texas is flat. It's going to be my first two lap day because I don't have to deal with any heels. I don't have to deal with anything like that. And so I finished the first one and I've always had this mentality that I don't quit. 
So I might not start, like if I can talk myself out of starting, but once I start, I'm going to finish it. So I had told myself that day, like your goal is just to get back to the start line. Because once you're back to the start line, you only walk one way. And that's what I did. So I was halfway through my second lap and my body just broke down. I was like, I can't move anymore. And there's a point in time in the Tough Mudder races where the full and the half split off. So there's like this sign that says, go here for the half and it goes straight to the finish line. And I remember seeing this and this is the only time I ran in the second lap is I saw the half split off and my mind kept saying, you could be done, you could be done, you could be done. And so I physically started running to get past that before my mind could convince me to take it. Nice. Like I didn't think that I could even walk. And all of a sudden I was like, if I, if I don't get past this right now, then I'm going to quit. And so I, I ran past it about a mile before the end of this, my second lap. I, I was ready for medical to come get me. So I just sat down and I was like, I'm, I'm done. Medical can come pick me up. And there was some like peaceful calm over me that I just really remember. I don't know if anybody's spiritual out there, but I am 100% sure that my dad was with me that day because I could hear him talking like as clear as day. And something about that like peaceful feeling of knowing that I had accomplished that day more than anything that I ever thought I could physically accomplish before. And there's a saying that your mind will give out long before your body ever does. And so I sat there and thought like, is my body really done? So I got up, I started walking and I actually like collapsed in the arms of the person that was at the finish line, gave him a huge hug. He was a friend of mine. And then I ran Sunday, I ran 10 miles the next day. Wow. So those experiences compounded on one another to get to World's Toughest Mudder in 2017, where I used the same mentality. I told my mom, who was my pit crew, my mom and my two brothers, your one goal is to get me to the start line because I only walk one way. So when I come in the pit to pit, like get me to the start line, I had a 25 mile goal. I hit that 25 mile goal, wanted to quit in the middle of the night. My mom wouldn't let me. So it was, it is still one of the proudest moments of anything that I've done. And it is still like, I have my world's toughest mutter shirts, my headbands. And anytime I'm going into a situation where I feel uncomfortable, those are the things that I wear because it reminds me that if I can run for 24 hours in the desert, that I can do anything. Like there's nothing that you can't accomplish. So that's why I always say that this physical aspect is so important because it gives your brain something to actually remember in what you've accomplished. And it reminds yourself that when you, when you say you can't do something, you're full of shit. I'm going to steal your line. I love that story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, really, you gave me chills just hearing about it. You know, it's, it's amazing how many of our, how many people that have come on the podcast have talked about that higher power and having that, that sense of there being something bigger than you. That's a huge driving factor. And um, I love that you correlated that and that you could sit there and just listen for that. Um, but I want to pick out two things you said um, in particular and really highlight those. The first one is the community aspect. I think community is huge. Um, I'm a big CrossFitter. Heather's done CrossFit with me before. And 
it's, I, I correlate that to the military, to law enforcement, to even something like AA, where you're in a community of people all striving for the same mission. And I think that's huge. You go out to these mud runs. I've done a Tough Mudder. I definitely walked the heck out of it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're a lot of fun when you're with the group of people all pushing to that same end state, that same mission. So, you know, I think that's huge for all our listeners to understand having a community of people around you that are all driving to that same aspect and same goal is just phenomenal. And then the other piece is you, you essentially alluded to taking that first step, starting, making sure you start um, getting that small victory, which leads up to the big victory. And there's a speech, and I think we talked about this, but if we didn't, I'd be willing to bet you know what I'm talking about. There was an Admiral McRaven that gave a speech about making your bed in the morning. His book is, is one of my favorites, and it's something that when I deployed to Afghanistan, I talked about a lot with my soldiers, not necessarily make your bed. You know, naturally in the military, that's kind of a given. You have to make your bed, fix your cot, so on and so forth. But, you know, it's that small win in the morning that gets the things moving in the right direction, taking that small victory and realizing, you know, getting the endorphin boost and getting the compounding effect of there's my first victory of the day, getting to the starting line and seeing this is my first victory of the day, 25 miles, 24 hours later, you're still a nut for that. But <laughs> um, the fact that you were able to do that because you took that first step is just incredible. And I really hope people take that lesson away from everything you said, because I think it is truly truly inspirational when people can push their mind that far. So definitely, um, I applaud you for that. It's really, really incredible. I thank you. I definitely agree with you on the community side. And it's funny because CrossFit has this stigma behind it. Like you see people who aren't in CrossFit think that CrossFit people are crazy. And Absolutely. so you see all the memes that are out there that were like, I'm going to CrossFit gym and now you're like in a cult. Right. And the reality is it's, it's the community that gets you going back. And I didn't run 15 Tough Mudders and then run 25 miles or 25 hours in the desert because I wanted to put my body through that. I did it because the community made me feel like there was a, a, a reason for doing it. Like we all got to suffer together. And so whatever you're doing, and because this is the same for me in my legal career, in my NLP training, in my podcasting, in everything that I do, like surround yourself with like-minded people that are doing what you want to do, because there's gonna, no matter what you're doing, there's going to come a time that you want to quit. And you're going to have people around you that either number one, don't let you quit, or you're going to see somebody who has it worse than what you perceive yourself having. And it's going to remind you that you need to keep pushing forward. And then you're going to turn and motivate that person Yes. And two miles later, they're going to turn and motivate you. And it's just a cycle that keeps going. It keeps feeding each other. And um, during my CrossFit career, if you will, I've been doing CrossFit probably eight years now. Um, the first couple years, I would go to this lunchtime class. And it was me and one other person. And that one other person was the most adorable Farrah Fawcett lookalike 55-year-old woman that was terrified of box jumps, terrified to do certain things, but was every single day she and I would show up and work out together. And, um, I'm definitely that like macho guy that goes <laughs> and does the crazy weightlifting stuff, but to see this sweet little lady show up and conquer her fears of box jumps. I mean, we custom built a box for, 
just so she could like step her way up to regular box jumps and seeing that resiliency. But one day she, she broke down. She's like, look, the only reason I'm doing it is because of you. And I'm like, the only reason I'm doing it is because of you. <laughs> and that's part that's, of that community. Yeah. And that's such a big point because so many people think they're like a burden when they're being motivated by somebody else. What they don't realize is that they're motivating other people just as much as they're being motivated. And Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. I love that we hit on that. What are you doing more? Are you doing um, coaching, instructing with the NLP? Is there anything that where people can find you as a resource? Do you have anything out there yet where they can see that? Yeah. So I have a couple of things going on. Um, I have my community page at More Than Corporate Community on Facebook, where you can connect with me and have um, some interactions between some other people that listen to the podcast. And then I also am, if anybody is interested, you can reach out to me, but I am doing this goal setting. I've, I've done a couple goal setting workshops. I did a virtual one on Saturday and an in-person one on the 14th. And I'm rolling that into an accountability group with Facebook. So if anybody's interested in getting into a place where you have like structured modules with expert calls on mindset and the way that mindset affects the accomplishment or, or failure of your goals, then I'm putting together that type of a program that'll launch in January as well. So you can reach out to me, send me a message, join the community, and then the community is a free Facebook group. And then we'll be happy to talk about what other options we may have that fit for you in accomplishing any goals you have for 2020 and how we can make that happen. That's awesome. And that's a great start to building a community around different goals in general. We keep talking about community. I think that's a phenomenal resource because you and I are in a Facebook community together and different things. And like you said, it's always those like-minded folks that are around there where I see them post something like, well, that's easy for me. And then I have a struggle and I post it and somebody else comes back. That's easy for me. And then, you know, here are your steps. So it's truly amazing. I want to push forward a little bit. There are three questions we ask every one of our interviewees. Okay. And we're going to put you on the spot where you have to answer it as best as you possibly can. Surprise. Gotcha. Um, my law school training is going to come into play here. <laughs> like preparedness is overrated. Don't tell my clients. I didn't, I didn't hear a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first one is what would new you tell old you? That nobody really cares. And, and what, what I mean by that is I get in my head so much about what is somebody thinking about me? Like, I can't go out and do this because this person will think this awful thing about me. And then you find out that the, the, the story that you've made in your head of the person that's going to think these awful things about you, if you go out and crush your goals, doesn't even know you exist because it's some like random person. Like people are always out there supporting you um, and so whatever's going on in my head of there's always that person out there that's looking to like sabotage my success, that person is me and there's no, like nobody else out there cares an, enough. And I know that sounds awful when I say it, but they care in a good way. They don't care in a bad way, if that makes sense. Nobody's really truly wishing for you to fail. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably better than nobody cares because there are a lot of people that care about you, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I think it kind of draws back to a point you made um, towards the beginning, uh, talking about the NLP um, 
limiting beliefs and having those limiting beliefs that have come from childhood, keeping you back. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about here is it's your own limiting beliefs that are setting you back, not somebody else's beliefs that you're going to fail so on and so forth. So definitely a good point of what you tell old you. Yeah. I mean, we always, we always hear the cliche, you're your own worst critic, but when you really break that down into why it's because of all that stuff that's going on in your mind that you're not even consciously aware of. And it doesn't have to be like, everybody thinks, um, Oh, I had this really great childhood. Um, you know, I wasn't abused. My parents were together. So there can't be anything holding me back, but it doesn't have to be trauma. It can be the most innocent comment that's made to you when you're a kid that makes you think you're not capable of accomplishing something as an adult. And you don't even know what it is until you really start digging in and dealing with it. So and that's an area that as a business owner, I know I've focused on with different type of leadership outsets and, and different leadership summits that I've been to talking about limiting beliefs I was raised by a very, very blue collar family and they were very big on, you know, the people that have money are evil more or less, or money drives evil. And for so long, a limiting belief was if I have money, I'm an evil person. And that's been a big thing I've heard as a normal rhetoric around business owners trying to get past that aspect of, I don't deserve to earn money for a specialty. So it doesn't, you're, you're right. It doesn't have to be drama related. It's just literally a conversation you were born into that you accepted, you adopted without even realizing when you're three years old, you just have to have the objectivity now to look at it and move past it. Absolutely. So our second question is what type of resource would you give our audience, especially those that are in our program to help them with their mindset, their resilience. It can be a book, a podcast, a quote, anything that you draw from in those tough times, not including your headbands because we don't want to give those away. So I'm going to give you two. And one of them is a group of resources from Brene Brown. And this was the first thing that was given to me when I walked into my therapist's office for the first time. And it's her TED talk called The Power of Vulnerability. Um, she has a bunch of other Ted talks as well. She has three total ones. So if you group those in together, there's the power of vulnerability, listening to shame and your critics aren't the ones who count. And those three together take about an hour to listen to. And there's still a staple in what I do. So that would be the first one. The second one is a book and this book I've read probably 10 times at this point, And I, it, gives me something new every time I listen to it. And that's Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. The, the real premise of that book is that we all care about too many things. And the subtle art of not caring is figuring out what you really want to care about and then being willing to let everything else go. And it's so powerful. I actually just added that to my Audible account because that's one that's been on my list. And so it's good. Such, I, I can't wait because I've heard so many great things about it. And not giving a fuck is a huge aspect of it. same thing you said from the, what knew you could tell old you, you know, yeah. you just have to kind of send it out there and, and know that you're good enough to accomplish whatever you're doing. Yeah. And I mean, and that ties into kind of the same thing because the, the haters that are out there that are, that are going to hate on whatever you do either way, they're hating on you because they don't have enough stuff to care about in their life. They don't have enough stuff going on in their life to take on their attention. So they have to, focus on other people. And so realizing that that has nothing to do with you and everything to do with them is so important. Love it. 
Our final question is where can our listeners find you, find more about you, whether it's social media, your website, and if it involves your name, please spell your last name properly <laughs> so they can find you. Um, but any type of resource where they can come find you, including your Facebook community. Yeah. So I am excruciatingly vulnerable and open on my podcast. So if anybody wants to know who I am, honestly, my podcast is, is a great place to start. So that's the more than corporate podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Google play, wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, you can also track me down on Facebook at Amber Furman or on Instagram at Amber Furman. And my last name is F U H R I M A N. Um, and then the community page. I mentioned that before, but you know, we welcome everybody into that community page with the understanding that we're all there to build each other up and that like negativity isn't, isn't part of our day unless it's being done with the, this is what I'm struggling with. Let's figure out how to get past this type of negativity. Um, and so that's the more than corporate community on Facebook. Amazing. Amazing. Definitely go check out the podcast. I think that's where I've listened to a couple episodes and you definitely show us the power of vulnerability, just like you have with this interview. So thank you so much for joining us. And I really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to come on. Talk to you soon. If you or anyone you know has been victimized by domestic violence, please reach out to us for resources and ways our organization can help you. You can find us on social media at 2thrivingatl, T-O thriving ATL, or online at 2thriving.org.